Welcome to the Cloudwire podcast, a place for conversations around cloud financial management. One of the trends that I am seeing uh, is that the customers don't want to do this manually, right? Going back to the talk we had on manual yeah. stuff, the customers just don't, and does the manually managing your cloud portfolio from a cost optimization perspective is a lot of burden. If you're not automating it, it is really hard to manage it. Customers have hundreds of teams at their end and each one of those teams has engineering, development, business priorities that they have to be focused on. And then you bring in uh, a notion of, uh, hey, here is a set of things you should consider right-sizing because it saves you, you know, $150 $150 a day, uh, that gets lost mm-hmm. in the noise. Uh, yeah. So what, what, what we are beginning to see uh, for a bit is the adoption of our automation framework to automate the process flow of great, identify the opportunity, size the opportunity, send it to the right people to get their feedback and acceptance. Uh, and then the actual enablement of it is things that customers like to keep at their end. They don't want us to be actually making the right sizing changes. Uh, a few do, uh, a few of them want to move at really fast pace to have that happen automatically post approval, but most have internal change management processes for which they want us to integrate with whatever they're doing inside their systems. But from the time and recommendation is accepted by a team to the time that it actually gets realized, there is a lot of drop off that happens. Oh yeah. Sure. What do you think, Dieter? What's what's your expectation? What, well, what's your I experience have, on that? And and of course, I have experience with uh, relatively small companies, right? Where there is like one person doing cloud financial management, right? With with Excel spreadsheets, right? And they are they are just trying to do the best that they can, right? Um, and it's usually split between rate reduction and cost avoidance. Rate reduction is like enterprise contracts, reserved instances, that kind of stuff. Cost avoidance is like cloud parking, right sizing, um, you know, those kind of things. So, um, and, and they just try to do the best that they can with, with you know, one person possibly doing it part-time, right? Um, but then I also have experience with companies taking it all the way to where they actually automated right sizing. Um, Horizon is, is one of those, uh, Capital One is another one, right? And the way to, to that they automated it is they take the recommendation and they make a code check-in um, that the next time an engineer wants to uh, do a deploy, they need to uh, do a merge request for an automated code check-in. Um, and so, the, and the automated code checking is just a configuration change, right? They take like an M5 4XL to an M5 2XL, right? And the, the, the burden is basically pushed on the um, software engineer. Um, when they want to release their code, they need to uh, either approve or deny the automated merge request, right? Um, so I have seen the, the entire area. One thing that is common though in in all of this, to be successful, the engineers need to be motivated to execute on the changes and or on the recommendations. And to be motivated, it has to be part of their performance evaluation. 
some somewhere, sometime, somehow. Um, if the and, and again, I've seen you know large companies fail and small companies fail alike, where people came to me and said, uh, "Here, I don't know how to make my engineers work on the CFM recommendations." Right, um, and the the effect that you typically typically see is the engineers will take the recommendation, and because they don't they are not affected, it's not part of the OKRs, right? It's not part of their performance evaluation. The recommendations get put at the bottom of the list. Engineers that, that are very efficient, that are very motivated, they will go and um, execute a couple of them, right? And then go to their manager and say, hey, look what I did. This is for, for bonus points, right? Gold star, uh, you know, you, you get like uh, additional kudos for that. Possibly maybe career path improvement, that kind of stuff, right? But um, maybe 80% of the, of the engineers won't act on those recommendations uh, because it's not part of the performance evaluation. So to, to get it onto their performance evaluation, you need to go to the executives, to a CEO, to a CTO, right? And explain to them, look, here is in aggregate the opportunity for our company. And typically it's somewhere around 30% of their total cost. Yeah. It can, can be saved. And um, you know, if they spend ten million dollars, that's three million dollars, right? And the executive then will say, "Okay, for three million dollars, I can hire X amount of engineers, right?" Um, and so they will have that realization. Um, it's not guaranteed, right? I have seen. I, I worked with a company at iRobot where the executive went to their lead engineer, and the lead engineer says, "No, this is not a problem. We don't have that problem. Everything that we do is serverless. We don't have any right sizing opportunity." which as you know, is, is nonsense, right? So um, th then the CTO said, okay, fine, drop the, drop the um, topic, right? But uh, so I have seen that as well, but typically if the executive then puts the mandate, right? And it becomes part of the OKRs of the performance evaluations, then the engineers will start relatively sluggishly, but they will start working on them. Right, so that is definitely one way to attack it to make it somebody's part of their bonus program or whatever the case might be. Um, what I'm seeing is also where companies are gamif gamifying it without necessarily making it be part of the performance mm -hmm. evaluation. Because if you make everything part of performance evaluation, that is also wooden in and itself. And the level of HR change that has to happen in large organization to make something be part of MBRs uh, for uh, for any individual or a team is is that's a that's a massive massive undertaking in and of itself. Uh, have you seen anybody just gamify it through process Lord. and notifications? And I would love would love your view on it because that's what I'm seeing, and that is a much more faster, nimbler, easier way to adopt it. That's what I do actually, right? Um, well, let's hear what you do then, because that's what we are building and doing for our customers too. <laughs> So it's very simple, right? I basically sort the opportunities by owner largest on top. So in a sense, it is kind of like when you think about it, right? Um, let's say you have Bob, John, and Dave, right? And Bob is on top with like $1.4 million of savings opportunity, right? And then John is there with like uh, 750000 and Dave is there with two hundred fifty. It's a wall of shame in a sense, right? But that is what I found works really well. Uh, I talked to uh, my friend at Dell Boomi. Um, they use uh, uh, like pirate coins, like, you know, like a treasure chest. 
And so you they basically introduced like a virtual currency for the office, right? And then if you have like, you know, a hundred points, the manager will actually expense, let's say they will buy you a jacket, right? If you have a thousand points, they will uh, get a team dinner, you know, something like that. If you have 10,000 points, it will be like a more personalized reward where you and your spouse can go on a night out in, in town, something like that, right? So I've seen like, you know, pirate booties, treasure chest, like gold coins, you know, all those, I mean, it's virtual. There's no actual gold coins, right? I wish, but- um, you know, I don't know the amount of money you save. I think you can easily buy a few gold coins without even breaking a sweat. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but you know, at, at some point I have also seen at very large companies, right? That for example, when I interviewed with Instacart, right? Um, and they told me, okay, our annual spend is, you know, $40 million and we have done nothing. Uh, and I told them, okay, I can save you probably 30% of that. That is my track record. That is my history, right? Over, over the last eight years, that is how I performed. And then I asked them what, you know, so how are you going to build that relationship? Well, you will be a project manager, Dieter, and you will get 150000 a year and so i told her directly you understand that i'm going to save you 12 million dollars why would i take a job for 150,000? right and and this is why i'm not working for instacart right now because... well maybe they should call us we'll be happy to give them a spot of reconciliation <laughs> but, but that's that's the thing right um sometimes it is possible like for example at at uh, intuit i saved something like um 40 million dollars in the first year now that was, I, I renegotiated the contract, right? I got their um, overall percentage from something like 12 to 30%, right? That, that was in itself, you know, six weeks worth of work and, and tens of millions of dollars of savings, right? Then they had like one RI and it was in the wrong region. So that, that, that didn't work, right? So I started building an RI portfolio for them, right? Which again, saved like $7 million. So um, very quickly uh, you get into that area, right? Where the gamified currency or something gamified may not work out, right? Because the, the savings, especially if nothing, there's no precedence, nothing has happened before, the savings could be like sub very substantial, right? And so um, even taking like a 1% of that would be already exceeding someone's salary, right? Some, something yeah. like that. So, but overall, I think it can work. I have seen it work many, many times. Um, one company had, uh, I think it was actually Atlassian, they had beers. They basically said like, hey, if you save money for every $10, we buy you a beer. Yeah. So this, this, you know, that worked fine until one engineer saved like so much money that they would have had 10,000 beers, right? So it's like basically an entire truck full of beer. So the engineer said, we don't want to drink that much, man. <laughs> don't, don't bother. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, like, actually, yes, this is a very good point, right? There is only so many details to go around who can actually get this done uh, effectively in the organizations, right? That knowledge is uh, unique and that level of capability and experiences is, is very limited in the industry. Uh, and now, as the cloud adoption is continuing to grow leaps and bounds, um, I think you would agree on this, but automating this away is the only real yeah. solution yeah. so identifying these opportunities and then having these opportunities flows to the teams directly for their acceptance or rejection and once they accept it that actually having some kind of a trick you know tracking mechanism in place to see 
that these are actually being realized or not. Uh, and when they do get realized, then getting them on the, you know, getting them on the wall of fame. And if they have not been realized for a period of time, getting them on the wall of shame, right? That's what we are seeing uh, as as approach that can scale out uh, across the company. Absolutely, the, the automation is key um, for many other reasons as well, right? Because it's faster than people, right? How long does it take a person to do something? Maybe five, seven days, if it's a really, really good person, right? Um, I have seen like months sometimes pass, but I would like to caution as well. Um, the automation, basically what we are doing is we are building something because there is a, a lack on opportunity on the cloud provider side, right? If the cloud provider ever would uh, change their services or update their services, um, to have a, a couple of fairly minor features, they would instantly make um, automation obsolete. Um, one example is what Snowflake did, right? Snowflake is essentially a glorified RDS cluster, right? But the cluster has an, an, a feature where uh, on five minute idle, so no inbound connections for five minutes, it stops the EC2 instances that it runs on. So there is a proxy server in front of it. Um, if you connect to the Snowflake cluster, um, the proxy server will hold the connection. It will restart the EC2 instances. Once everything is up and running, it will give you connection to the sort of RDS cluster, right? Um, if Amazon would do that, let's say for all of its RDS, for all of its EC2, Right? I mean, the revenue will drop by 30%. I can tell you that, right? Because that is sort of like what is um, viewed as the opportunity in the industry. So Amazon's revenue will go down by 30%, but also any vendor that built automation, that autom automation will be obsolete. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that because uh, there are certain things that can be remediated through snowflake-like mechanism but there's a whole bunch of industry okay. applications that absolutely cannot. Uh, Especially and in the governance area, right? When you go into security, uh, there's, you have an open S3 bucket. Uh, Roku has five. I audited each one of them. There was a good reason for each one of them to be public, right? <laughs> so you can't just say like, oh, we close all that stuff down. All of a sudden our partners don't get content anymore, right? Bingo, right? So there is there is a lot of applications, and I would venture on to say vast majority of the enterprise applications that are not tolerant uh, to the snowflake model. Uh, to even like shut down applications is not a trivial task, oftentimes, right? Uh, so the engineering being bypassed uh, for automation, uh, for for uh, right sizing and opportunity waste management. I don't see that as a gap from cloud providers. Uh, I actually see that as a necessity uh, that is forced on the cloud providers as well, regardless of their impacts on their margin, because they always like looking at it from their perspective, they have to defer on the side of caution every yeah. single time, uh, right? If now, deferring on the side of caution also leads to more revenue. So there is always that fun part, but uh, with that said, they, 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 I, I fundamentally understand the reasoning behind cloud providers not taking that extra two or three or four steps because taking those extra three or four steps 
could lead to a whole bunch of enterprises getting into trouble in involuntarily without even understanding what they got themselves. But you know, they could offer the features as an optional um, possibility, right? And they and, don't even do that. Yeah, and that's a time series problem, right? Because they themselves have to work on a variety of different features and products for their customers based on the customer's feedback. Uh, so they're, you know, delivering as many EC2 instance types as fast as they can, putting the best engineering talent on it, as many new services as they can. Uh, yes. yes, it means more money, but also they're growing the market, right? Like it, yeah. it is it is taking care of so much market. So from a macro perspective, if I'm in, you know, our friend Andy Jassy's shoes, I obviously want to continue to deliver high value for the customers, which right. to their credit, they have. Right, the savings yeah. plan and everything Absolutely. that they have introduced, they've done a really, really fantastic job at it. But as you take savings plan as an example, right? Look what it did to companies that provided automated RI management. For you. I know, we were one of them. <laughs> right? I, 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 trust me, my brother, I know that one. It, 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 like very, like, you know, November, like November 13, 2019. I will never forget that day and what that meant to me. <laughs> yeah. right? uh, yeah. But, but yeah. that's the, that's, and, and that's where I always, you know, from my point of view, if you're a vendor complaining about something like that, you're in the wrong space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. This is a time series space. If you are not continuously innovating along with the cloud Agreed. providers on how to provide value to your customers that are mutual yes. customers, you will get obsolete. You will become a dinosaur. It yes. used to take five years or 10 years or 15 years to become dinosaur. Now it takes three years, two years, maybe it a year and a half. November 13th. And that one, I just, I so sidebar <laughs> real quickly, right? Internally, we've had so many conversations on that topic prior to that, and that's going to happen someday. We expected that to happen. That wasn't a surprise, right? We knew there was something like that coming that's going to have a major impact uh, on our, our primary. Like, it just makes sense. Like, yeah. These providers are obsessed about their customers to grow the market. They want to grow as much as market as they can. I was just hoping I'll get another year from it. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted one more year. Well, with that said, yeah. With in hindsight, right? In hindsight, that is the best thing that could have happened to us. I, I think so. It, it it has a lot of advantages. Plus, I see even nowadays. I talked to a a, a guy this morning that uh, said that you know, but uh, because all the other services like Elasticsearch and Elasticsearch only have our eyes, I find it easier to just manage EC2 with RIs. And I'm like, you can't tell people, you can't help people if they don't want to, right? Like, there's, there's, always, there's always that. So. There's always those guys, right? Um, yeah. And savings plan adoption is um, interestingly slow. Interestingly enough, very slow. I don't know why. I, I I actually have a perspective on it. We can probably have a whole chat on this topic as well. Maybe next chat, let's let's you know double click uh, more on savings plans, savings instruments, and all that other stuff. Because um, the short, my perspective is the portfolio that AWS brings to its customers on these savings instruments of reservations, savings plans, reserved instances, uh, convertible reserved instances. Uh, standard reserved instances, marketplace reserved instances, that portfolio, when you combine it together in the right manner at a company is freaking brilliant. But yeah. that's topic for another day.
Yeah. Uh, I know we wanted to chat a little bit on the right sizing today as well. So uh, like, let's do that. Cloud very practically started because of right sizing. You know, I will go as far as saying is that back about you know six odd years ago, my boss at the time said, "Dude, I'm spending too much money. You know, uh, substantially over 10 million. You've got three months. It needs to be half." <laughs> And we did almost all of that using right sizing yeah. uh, because when we looked at the average CPUs, they were running at two or three percent, and yeah. we looked at the max CPUs, they were typically not exceeding twenty percent. Yeah. yeah, on a single core, on a multi-core box. Yeah, very, very, very common. Um, at Intuit, the same thing. Um, Eighty-five percent of the usage was less than five percent CPU. Right. There was a couple of applications that were in the 20 to 30% range, but far, far and few in between. The boxes were running way too cold and they're still hot today. Yeah. Uh, very, I think cool. we have seen that actually, I talked with um, Simar and, and um, Angat over the Google Docs, right? Where we have seen that in the data center, right? So, uh, 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 over provisioning or buffering um, was the, the only way to handle that because procurement was months, right? So you, the, the engineer over uh, buffered for daily peak. The um, engineering manager buffered for seasonal peak. The uh, VP buffered to make sure that they keep their job. So, <laughs> right? And then you took that, that workload and they did a lift and shift. Uh, how I love the term lift and shift. It is, you can also say poop in, poop out. Same thing. Absolutely same thing, right? So they did a lift and shift into the cloud. So you had buffers on top of buffers on top of buffers all of a sudden in the cloud, right? And this is how you get two to 3% CPU utilization. Yeah. Well, and you know, do they, you know, they had to do that because procurement lead times used to be three months, uh, and you know, software, the hardware you had to project to live with for the next five to seven years. Uh, so they had really good reasons for it. But that whole elasticity uh, concept of the cloud was a game changer. Uh, is a game changer. Uh, and you know, if you uh, placed an order with Supermicro for let's say ten or twenty servers it took three months. If you placed an order for 500 or 1500, they basically said, we can't do it. You need to reduce your order. Um, the problem was that, you know, maybe they had a thousand customers, right? And it's the same when you go to, to Starbucks and you say like, hey, I want a thousand coffees. They will kick you out, right? And it doesn't matter that you have a bunch of hundred dollar bills in your hand, right? They will say, look at this line of people. All of these will be pissed off because you got your thousand coffees, right? You need to call this order in well in advance, right? Like a week or two in advance. And then you get those big cartons, right? With the coffee in them and you can take those home. Uh, it, and that was the same with Supermicro or any of the other, you know, hardware vendors that, and, and remember the uh, SSD sort, uh, shortage where you couldn't buy SSDs, right? There, there were times in the, in the marketplace where the marketplace was completely, oh, graphic cards is because all, of all the crypto mining, right? Uh, even nowadays, you can go on eBay, entire computers are being sold ready for a NVIDIA RTX 2080, ready. It does not include the graphic card. Yeah, that's so in short supply. Yeah, absolutely. So the cloud has definitely changed the game. Uh, about cross-family right sizing, right? How, how do you do that? Let's so let's talk about this. I think fundamentally, 
um, if your CPU, memory, disk, and um, a network is a match, it's a go, right? Um, not on Graviton. Graviton, of course, is a is a risk-based architecture, completely different ballgame, right? But um, as long as it fits, I think it's okay to to uh, migrate to, to that instance, right? And I don't care if you take like a, a C4 to a T3, if it fits, test it, test it and run it, right? Uh, that's sort of like my um, my experience in the industry. Um, as long and, and you need to save money, right? Uh, you don't, don't be cross cross migrating to something that is more expensive. There is no point in that. Uh, the same is sort of for RDS right sizing as well, right? Um, with RDS, so same principle applies, right? If it fits, go do it. Uh, with RDS though, I have seen because there's batch processing, right? And there's also very large systems like an SAP or something like that, right? Uh, similar because SAP will have dedicated very specialized databases, right? Uh, or, or virtual machine, uh, maybe like with, you know, two terabyte of memory or something crazy like that, right? But uh, generally, um, when you look at RDSs, there is um, sort of daily workloads, which are sometimes relatively small, but there's also batch workloads. And the batch workloads will give you very strong peaks, right? Um, where the batch is doing full table scans and that kind of nonsense because no one cares to optimize the SQL query for the batch. It's a batch, right? Doesn't matter how long it runs. That is again, a, a data center mindset, right? That um, yes, it matters how much it runs, right? The, the point is not of FinOps is not to save every dollar. The point of FinOps is to get the most out of every dollar, right? And if you have a crappy query, even if it runs once a week, right, it is still a problem because it may prevent us from right sizing to a smaller instance type. Absolutely. No, you that is that is one of the biggest issues. And then also, you know, how much memory is actually being consumed versus kept in cache, things that you have to take into yeah. account. Similar, you've you've spent quite a bit of time on uh, DB right sizing. What what is what are your findings? Uh, you know. For databases, I don't know how much it is for for RDS, um, but for databases, um, I have seen that uh, parameter configurations is more important um, than than size, right? Um, the database, the database, the database tuning is altogether the the big big yeah. big big ball of wax. But from actually right sizing the databases. Uh, level similar, <clears throat> anything you want to add from your end? No, I think it is very similar to, to EC2 right sizing, right? If, if it can run on it, if it can perform, um, just go and do it. Um, as you said, right, sometimes like the cache retention, um, the buffer sizes, um, there, there's, there may be a lot of uh, parameters that you can tune, right? Um, Pin, pin a query result in memory, that kind of stuff, right? There is a lot of additional stuff that can be done, but if the database runs, that's fine. Uh, one thing that I did notice is that MySQL running on ARM-based risk architecture, um, it doesn't perform very well because it's a multi-threaded um, application, right? Um, but I, I have seen people try to, uh, MySQL is, is uh, apparently open source, so, so they did recompile it on ARM processor and they did try to run it. Um, and it, 
you know, for some applications it might work. So, but uh, overall, I think if it fits, just move over to it, it's fine. Perfect, perfect. Similar, anything you want to add to that? Uh, no, I agree with Dieter. So basically we use the CPU memory. Uh, some additional things that the network uh, that we consider in is just the number of connections. Like if the number of connections are really low or zero, so we suggest that this might be a database that is not used. And I, I was surprised a large number of databases that I saw yeah. fall under this category. <laughs> so no one is connecting to them. That's right. And it's that's costing a... $100, $200 a month. That, so these are often, easy series. Those, the orphan databases are the, the, the best ones to go quickly find and eliminate. I have seen that, you know, even at Roku, right, the engineer needs like sort of like a configuration file that they want to make easily changeable, right? So instead of, because um, connecting to GitHub to get your configuration could be a little bit harder than collecting to a MySQL database. So you have a lot of those tiny MySQL databases that have one table with like five rows, you know, and every time the tool runs, it connects to the database, right? But uh, then over time, maybe there's another tool that is being built. And so that old tool gets sort of obsolete and you get those orphaned databases lying around those tiny little MySQL databases with like one table in them. Yeah, you need IOPS used, right? Um, and, and that you can only get with an agent. Um, uh, memory and, and disk is only available, it's not available um, on the hypervisor level, right? It's only available inside the VM. So you need to get that telemetry um, from an agent that you install. And so if you have an AMI or something like that, the agent needs to be installed on, on that VM and um, put that uh, KPIs out into uh, CloudWatch or CloudTrail, something like that. Um, we have seen at Intuit, right? that uh, uh, lifted and shifted applications were configured with something like 10,000 IOPS, right? Because they configured that application for, for peak. Now, as you know, Intuit is a, a tax company. Tax is only one day, typically April 15th, right? Um, and Business so, taxes multiple times of the year, but yeah. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I, I have to file quarterly taxes too, so that's a, that's a thing. But you know, if you need the 10,000 IOPS on, on April 15th, uh, why do you have it for 365 days, right? Um, and, and you know, you can, in a sense, scale the IOPS too, right, by, by sort of doing a manual scaling event or something like that, right? So uh, generally what, what I would recommend is um, you need to measure the how much of the IOPS is being used or how much of the throughput is being used. A similar issue you get with GP2 to GP3 migration, right? Um, AWS released GP3 and GP3 has a little bit different performance characteristics, right? Um, up to 250 gigabyte, it is sort of um, identical to um, GP2, the old one, right? And then past that, because GP2 scales uh, dynamically um, the throughput with the size of the disk. Um, but GP3 doesn't do that. You need to buy additional um, throughput. And that additional throughput is something like four cents per month. So it is pretty substantial. Um, but if your drive is large enough, right, um, the, the overall cost of the four cents may not, may be small and, and you may break even again, right? So it's sort of like a, a curve that you need to draw 
to, to get the points on the graph of where migration is feasible. So same thing with, with that technology as well, right? You just need to uh, figure out how much is being actually used, right? Um, and um, how much the destination does. Uh, one example at Roku was uh, we have a, a, a super stealth project uh, where um, we needed uh, fast swap space on the VM. And we moved from a regular VM with just EBS to a VM that has NVMe uh, storage, right? And uh, the, the, but you need to mount your swap onto the NVMe drive, right? So when that move happened initially, they didn't use the NVMe drive. <laughs> they just hoped it would work. But, um, you know, I found out that you, you, you swap when you mount it, right? When you in, in initialize your swap, you need to actually initialize it on the NVMe drive to take advantage of it, right? So keep that in mind too, that sometimes people do something that they think it works, but it doesn't. Okay. Thank you, Rita. Absolutely. Um, Adita? Fun. Looking forward to continuing to having these conversations and just catching up and chatting and uh... Let's, let's keep building the momentum. This industry has a long ways to go. I think we're just at the scratching of the surface of the first I think wave. we do. Like maybe in 10 years or so, but by then I might be retired. So who knows? <laughs>